Hello and welcome to the Modern Goddess. We have the lovely Amanda with us today. And heads up, guys, she's a professional. Yay! We haven't, we've been just talking to ordinary women, coaches, speakers, those types. Um, and we have had a few professionals, but it's always great to hear from a professional's point of view. But first, Amanda, we want to ask you, of course, the one and only question we like to ask, and that is, how do I love you properly? And then we can get into other things later. How do you love me properly? Yes. In what sense? So with the podcast, we're um, asking just that one question, how do I love you properly? So from if I was to be your um, significant other, what would you like to see? What works? What doesn't? And just um, explain to us how to love you as a modern goddess. Well, I think the most important part of that and pretty much everything I tell my clients as well is open, honest and genuine. So if you want to love me, you've got to be open, honest and genuine. And that's pretty much exactly what I get. Yeah, fantastic. So tell us about your world. Are you in a relationship? Are you long-term? Is it new? Where are you up to? Long-term, over 18 years together. Um, so <laughs> definitely long-term. And I hope it ends up being much more long-term than this. So I think this is the the early parts or the infancy of the relationship, honestly, in, in what I hope to have. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm 30 years in, so um, uh, I agree that the other half of that is um, interesting and amazing uh, journey, and uh, I hope mine continues on another 30 years as well. Yeah, you're probably just creeping up to the halfway point at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice way to look at it. Fantastic. I'm going to live to 120, so that fits in with my mindset for sure. Oh, nice. Yeah, my, my magic age is 104, so as long as I hit 104, I'm good. Uh-huh, fantastic. So tell us about your business and what you're finding out there with couples. What are people struggling with? What's the modern goddess doing? What are you seeing as a professional? Well, what I tend to see in my practice is that a lot of relationships struggle around identifying who they are and what they really want and how to actually share with somebody else of what they actually want. So they may individually know who they are, but then sharing it within the couple becomes the problem. That becomes that I'm not really sure if I'm ready to share and let somebody else into my world or even discuss with somebody else what my world looks like and how to let them in. So I tend to find that's one of the big issues that I have to deal with um, when we're looking at, you know, how does somebody let somebody else in and say, you know, I'm worthy of this and I hope that you want it as well. Right. Wow. That's um, unexpected that, um, yeah, that's what they're grappling with is that, um, how do I let people into my world? So what's, what's some advice you can give us so that we can open up safely? I think one of the best things to do is really communicate. That is the number one thing. So the more that you're capable of communicating with somebody else and really saying your heartfelt, your feelings and your emotions, and not just this is why it is like this. It's this is why it's like this. And this is what I really want out of this. And I think when you start doing that and opening up, um, it just gives you so much more breadth and depth of information of what you can actually individually do and do as a, as a couple as well in a relationship. And so I think 
that's probably the biggest thing is taking the time to be open, honest, and genuine about your feelings. And how do you find men cope with that or what's going on with men? Are they coming along? I have to say the men I see and a lot of them that come through my practice are phenomenal, really, really open to the suggestion. And I think one of the most important parts is that a lot of times people don't have, they don't have the knowledge or the education of how to actually have a relationship. And so if you don't have the knowledge and education on how to have a relationship, how do you have one? Like you, you just literally don't know, right? So you don't know what you don't know. And so when you start explaining the intricacies of how to do things, all of a sudden they have these aha moments like, wow, I wish I would have known this sooner or how come they're not teaching this stuff in high school? But why aren't we teaching relationships and conflict management and communication really early on? That is one of my banes of existence. And I think the flip side of it as well is that we recognize that it's not being taught. So we recognize we have a skill shortage that we need to kind of like increase and do something about. Um, but then the problem is a lot of people are terrified to actually go and speak to somebody with the skill knowledge. So it's like, okay, if my, the, the example I use is if my car needs its tires changed or its oil changed, I am sure I could probably through the use of like YouTube or a whole bunch of other channels like that, I could probably figure it out myself. Do I want to? Not really. Do I want to provide my car to somebody who has done this for a living? and who knows what they're doing and I know I'm going to get back a car that's actually safe and working the way it's meant to. Yep. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look up a mechanic who does these things and I'm going to bring my car to that trusty mechanic and hopefully they have the skills to provide me what like the education that I need or the service that I need. However, when it comes to our relationship, there's this massive taboo around it that it's, well, I don't think I want to talk to a professional about this. And so people are almost scared away from speaking to a professional because they have this feeling that they should know what to be doing. But how should you know what to do if you've never been taught how to do it? Yeah, that makes total sense when you hear it like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, will, um, I will use that from now on when convincing people <laughs> about getting, getting some help because how are we meant to know? And how, how did I know? And what are all the, the, the mistakes that I've made that were probably really unnecessary just if I had a little bit of education? Yeah. And it's also one of those like ongoing education. So again, not making it taboo. Just because you've, you know, gone to see a relationship educator doesn't mean that you need to go to counseling or go to therapy or whatever, or see someone every week for the rest of your life. Absolutely not. You go in, you get a strategic skill, you go home, you implement it in your relationship, and until the next hurdle comes up, again, like a car, like you take your car in to get serviced every 15,000 kilometers, why do we not do the same with our relationship? So go and get your relationship serviced every three to six months. It might be a one-off appointment, but at least in that one-off appointment, you're learning some new skills that you can implement, Hopefully you have some takeaways that, you know, the therapist has provided you with or the educators provided you with. 
And then you can just make the next three to six months even more enjoyable. And then what happens is if anything comes up, like if any kind of, you know, crap hits the fan in that three to six months in between, you're only dealing with three to six months of crap. You're not dealing with three, five, 10 years of stuff to try to, to fix and manage. I always um, was worried that whoever found the counselor, the relationship counselor, was the one and the one that was paying for the counselor was going to get favoured in some way. How do you deal with that whole, I'm going to be heard and I'm not, the person paying is not necessarily going to get favoured? I think the biggest thing with that, and I, I hear what you're saying, but I think the biggest thing for that is that people come in and you see the relationship as a whole. You don't see one versus the other. You don't see, oh, this one's paid for it and this one, you know, isn't working or you know, like you don't look at any of that. You really look at the relationship as a whole. So they come in regardless of how much they've paid or who's paid or anything like that. And it's really the job is, of the therapist to make sure that there's an even playing field. So really having that opportunity to make sure that each part of that relationship is evenly heard and that there's not just the one dominant partner who's constantly speaking or overshadowing a partner who may not be as vocal. Yeah, because that is such a tough one. There's always one louder than the other and one's more articulate than the other and one's faster than the other. And I find that those slower ones really you need to give them space to answer, space to process, space to think of their thoughts and what that might, the answer might be. And I think you've touched on uh, a really good point there is that you need to give them the space to be able to think it through. So having a moment of silence while they're processing and thinking through their answer is really important. So if at that point you notice the other partner jumping in to answer the question, it's really holding the space and saying, no, hold on, let your partner answer. So it's really finding the delicate balance to be able to divide between the two. Yeah, the um, I come from a big rowdy family, so interruptions are totally normal for us, and we're used to it, and it's just part of our communication skills. But that doesn't um, mean it's uh, good <laughs> at all. But um, I just find that other people are not, you know, they're from a more quiet family, a bit more reserved. Um, they never interrupt. Like that's just rude. Um, I find that they. You know, they, they, I really feel for them in business. I feel for them in the office. I feel for them in therapy, um, whether they actually ever get it out. <laughs> and I think the big thing there is also understanding that the way in which you are in your own individual family might be vastly different to how your partner is in their family. And so when you're coming together, you got to find the best way to navigate the relationship together. And so what works for you and your family may not necessarily be what works for your partner and their family and may definitely not be what works together in your relationship. And so there's really, in just that scenario, there's three different dynamics that we have to consider. Yeah, that's amazing. And so um, with um, coming to a professional, what you said that they could come for one session and go away and implement one thing. Is that, um, is that the way you work, like the packages and whatnot? What, what, what sort of goes on there? That's a great question. Um, what I tend to find is when I see couples, I see them, the very first kind of set of sessions I see them is four sessions. Mm -hmm. So I see them together, 
and then I see them one on one and then together. Uh -huh. So I get a, a couple view of what they're like on their first session. Individually, they can then speak to me and if anything comes up through that, that they want to then share in the next um, kind of get together in session, they can. Within those first four sessions, there's plenty of work that can be created that I can kind of send them away with and say, now implement this. Now, some people have busy lives, have kids, have traveling. Like when COVID isn't interacted, I actually travel about seven months out of the year. So <laughs> it's, it seems really weird just being like home-based for such a long period of time and not flying out somewhere. So we all have lives that keep us busy, family, kids, work, whatever it might be. So some couples go away and it might take them two, three, four weeks to get to their homework, implement it properly enough times that they understand whether or not it's worked for them. And then they come back to see me. So in the start, it might be they see me once a month after that first four sessions. But then eventually it's like they get their stuff going and maybe see me once every three months, maybe see me once every six months. They might come to a couple's retreat and that's an intensive two days, just me and them eight hours a day. So it's a big two day commitment. Um, but other than that, it's take this stuff away, go and implement it, understand what works and doesn't work for you in your relationship. And then let's come back and discuss it. Um, with the mental health side of things, I've got a massive fascination with narcissism, sociopaths, psychopaths, and how, because a lot of my clients um, are with people like that. And um, is there really helping? Is there anything that you can do there? Or is that just a runaway type thing? You just can't live with them. You can't ever, they can't ever evolve or improve few differences there because there's a massive, massive spectrum between someone who's a narcissist and someone who's a psychopath. So true psychopathology in Australia is less than 0.5% of the population. So true psychopathology is actually really, really tiny in the population. Um, Drug-induced psychosis uh, is definitely present, but again, very, very small. Whereas narcissism is much more about a person um, and how they behave in a relationship. Now, what you'll find is it's very difficult to play to the ego, we'll say, in a relationship of a narcissist if you're not willing to play to their ego. And so that becomes problematic. So um, it's if you're in the relationship, you have to understand why you're in that relationship. And so there's definitely certain relationships that will absolutely flourish, but it depends on the people within that dynamic. Whereas if you've walked into a dynamic and your first mindset is I'm going to change this person and they're going to be different, chances are you probably won't. Right. Yeah. So you're saying that if, if the, the woman or the man is saying to you, no, 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 I want to be in this relationship, help me make it work, you actually say to them, right, here's some skills to play to the ego so that we can placate the character. Yep. So it really, it, and you have to also understand why do they want to be in that particular relationship? Yeah. So it's, is this the right relationship for you? And what's your reasonings behind being in the relationship? 
And if they are absolutely gung-ho that they're like, this is the relationship for me. I absolutely head over heels, madly in love with this person. And this is the relationship I want to be in. Then they actually have to learn the skills to work, not towards that person, but to work together. And so there'll be things that if it's someone who's narcissistic in, in the relationship that they also have to do. So it's not just a one-sided relationship. That's never going to work if it's a one-sided relationship right. ever. Right. Yeah. And so on to actual mental illness around depression, anxiety, um, and that we're seeing that's rife in today's world. Um, I've seen so many relationships that are dealing with depression and anxiety. It's a real hard slog and you don't know if they're going to ever come out of it or, or if there's ever going to be good days ahead. So what, what, what are you dealing with there from a professional's perspective? I think one of the hardest things to do um, with regard to that is when the person is in a relationship and you're the carer, for someone with a mental illness within that relationship, the carer's got to care about themselves as well. And I think that's the number one area that we fall short. Right. So a lot into our relationship and a lot into helping our partners, but then you also have to pay attention to what are you doing for yourself? So are you doing enough self-care? Are you doing enough self-compassion to actually make sure that your energy stores are at the right point to be able to deal with this? The flip side is, yeah, it's energy draining, it's energy sapping. Um, but what we do know is that there's heaps and heaps and heaps of evidence-based um, programs, evidence-based medication, evidence-based approaches to get mental health um, from like a depression and anxiety perspective, totally on the right track. But it takes a huge, huge support system. And so if the support system is not there, and again, with the support system, a really great level of understanding. So you need not only the support system, but you need an understanding of what the mental illness is, what the programs or the medications are, um, and what kind of routine or strategic um, kind of placement that looks like in the relationship um, and following through with it. And if you do all of that, the relationship can be phenomenal. The mental illness can be managed. The, you know, like there's just so many positive outcomes, but you can't, if you are the person not suffering from mental illness, you really, really, A, have to take care of yourself and B, have to be a huge support for your other person. Because, you know, if you're dealing with someone, let's say, um, let's say depression, that's, that's an easier one to deal with. So if we're dealing with someone with depression, saying, well, just get up, honey, and take a shower and get dressed today and let's go for a walk around the block because I heard that exercise is really good for depression. Okay, just telling the person to take a shower is a like Mount Kilimanjaro for that person who's suffering depression. And so for the person not suffering depression, you think, oh, this is really easy. Just go and take a shower and like, let's get up and let's enjoy our day. But it doesn't quite work like that. And then if they are on medication, they might take their medication, you know, religiously and quite well, but then they might go, oh my God, I'm feeling so great and stop taking their medication. And that's where the support system needs to come into place to say, no, 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 don't stop cold turkey. 
if you do want to reconsider your medication or what's going on, then you need to do that with the help of a professional, not just, oh, I'm feeling great today, so I'm going to stop taking my meds. Yeah, we're definitely across that, that's for sure. And what's your take on um, PTSD? Where are we up to these days? Well, from a perspective of post-traumatic stress disorder, what we tend to find is that there is, again, some really, really great evidence-based um, uh, programs out there to actually help people, which is, you know, again, you need to find them and you need to engage in them. Um, there is one program in particular that I know of that um, is currently the only evidence-based program to help people specifically deal with grief and loss and PTSD. Um, but people have to be willing to do the work. Mm. And I think a lot of people are in such a, a hard and harmed position from what the PTSD developed from that they're terrified to take the next steps because they don't know what that outcome is going to look like. So if you know someone like I, I can say, Oh my God, the program's amazing. And if they know me, they would believe me and they'd engage in the program. No problem. But if you don't know the person who's giving you that referral, you become really hesitant that it's the right referral for you. Yeah, it's a real tough one. And I do feel for your profession in that we're really not getting great results. Do you know what I mean? There's just so much out there that people are not, well, you know, they're, not, they're maybe not capable of taking responsibility and they're not capable of long-term commitment to their health and well-being. Um, and they're just self-medicating and, and, and doing whatever. But I just, oh, it just drives me crazy that these soldiers, for example, are coming back and just being dumped into a system that really doesn't help them. And they're abusing alcohol and all sorts of things and nothing seems to help. And it goes on for years and years and years. And then they might commit suicide or something and they become a number and oh, it just seems so sad. Devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Um, and it's not necessary. It's not required. There are ways to get help out there. But again, very similar to mental health and relationships is that you need the support system around you. So if you don't have the support system around you, helping you find the right programs and all that, then it literally feels like a hill you'll never be able to climb. Yeah. So there, you know, we know that there's really great things out there, like phenomenal programs out there, but it's a finding them, b engaging with them and following through and having the support to follow through. And also Unfortunately, it's also being able to afford them because here in Australia, a lot of the programs are actually not covered mm. by like Medicare or private health care and stuff like that. So it becomes a very large out of pocket expense. Mm. And that it's unfortunate, but that's where we're at with it. Mm. Look, um, poverty is never good when it comes to health and well-being, that's for sure, because at poverty level, um, these health and well-being ends up being a luxury instead of an essential. But um, in, in um, middle, 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 mid-range where both people are perhaps working and there's sort of two incomes, let's sort of assume that that's average or normal, um, why don't people 
prioritize their health and well-being and the health and well-being of their relationships and pay for good um, therapeutic interventions? Why do they see it as the government should provide that or whatever? I think, honestly, I think it's still because it's such a taboo. So I'm originally from Canada and in Canada, it's a very common thing. You'd go to a girlfriend's house for dinner and you talk about who's your therapist, who are you seeing, have you seen him or her recently? Like it, it's just, um, for lack of a better word, it's like an everyday like dinner chat conversation. It, it, there's nothing taboo. There's nothing like, oh, you're seeing a therapist? Something must be wrong with you. There's nothing about that. It's actually seen as a really positive. It's more of a preventative positive mental health step to take. Whereas unfortunately here, or at least what I've seen in Australia over the past 18 years, oh, no, is it's, <laughs> it's very hush hush. Yeah. It's, you wouldn't have a dinner conversation and say, oh, so who's your therapist? Or have you seen your therapist recently? And I think as long as it remains a taboo, people will not pay for it as preventative measure, which is unfortunate because their mental health is going to be impacted and will suffer um, absolutely wholeheartedly until they do find it a priority. Yeah, I think it, can, it sounds like Canada and America have the same view, whereas I think what's happened in Australia is we picked up the English stiff upper lip, reserved, private, don't wave your dirty laundry out in public. I think that's the route we ended up going, more the English route. Because in yeah. England, they don't talk about their life coaches and their business mentors and their therapists, where in America and Canada, they talk about their coaches and their mentors and their therapists. Quite proud. Really. Yeah, and like even when people say to me like, oh, how are you so, so successful in business? I'm like, oh, well, I owe that to my business coaches. You know, and I say like coaches, because over the years I've had numerous ones. and. They're there for different reasons at different points, but to think that you can be successful in business or successful in life or successful in your relationship with zero intervention ever, I think is already setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just find people are still, um, having a coach is still private. And I spent the last 20 years working with people in private, in confidence, and only now have I started to collect testimonials and case studies and even oh, with horrendous um, uncomfortableness asked for video testimonials. It was just awful how much. Oh, I still have clients who say, oh my God, don't ever tell anybody I'm a client of yours. I'm like, okay, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's odd, isn't it? And it's very difficult to... Um, you know, I know some people have no issue with it. And I've seen some people just ask for testimonials coming out of the room. They haven't even implemented anything. And already they have to give a testimonial about how good the day was. And I'm like, oh, my God, how is that uh, normal? But, um, yeah, we, we've got to that world where um, we want the social media, we want the social proof. But at the same time, it, things are private. And I do say to my clients, look, it's, it's very private. It, I don't. I don't need you to necessarily do much to, you know, share your experience and just let everyone think you did it by yourself. Yeah, um, which is hard though because it 
it keeps it a taboo situation. Mm. So if you're not sharing that, oh my God, I had such great results because I went and spoke to this person. The reason our marriage is still together is because I went and had this conversation with someone and wow, did they give me insight into how to be a husband or how to be a wife or how to be a loving partner or how to be a more intimate partner or how to be, you know, like, wow, you know, that insight was amazing. And that's exactly what our relationship needed. And now we're doing pretty good. Like, how great would that be? Rather than sitting at a friend's house for dinner and then listening to how their relationship is falling through the cracks and then going, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? They're quite willing to nitpick publicly and be rude to each other publicly and even have a fight publicly. And um, even if you don't say anything, we can tell the energy is not good over in that part of the table. And yet we're quite willing to have that reasonably public, but we won't go and see anyone and say we're seeing someone and that we care this much about each other to go and get some bloody education. You got it. Yeah, wow. That's a really, really big thing. Yeah, wow. I'm so sorry to hear that, Amanda. <laughs> um, I feel for you because, um, yeah, I think uh, now that I know it's actually an issue or now it's been articulated and it's in my mind, I'm going to start to help you change that. That's for sure. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've never focused on it before, but I'm focused on it now. So that's really good. So um, you hear people talking about like, oh, if you're depressed, go and see a psychologist. Or if you got a mental health issue, go have you talked to your doctor about this? But when people are struggling in their relationship, people don't say, have you spoken to a marriage educator? Have you gone and got some therapy about that? Have you like, have you done an intensive weekend with somebody? No, it's just like, oh, well, good luck. Yeah, and they have to become a psychologist themselves to try and work it all out because I've done 20 years of therapeutic coaching practices um, and while I'm not specialising in relationships, I, I don't know even what I specialise in, but I certainly don't talk very much about relationships. I just usually help the person on their own. Um, with yeah. whatever they're dealing with. But, um, God, it, 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 it seems to come down a lot to the mother and the father issue when, we, when we're doing our training. It's always this, the majority of stuff is mother and father-based. Are you finding that with relationships that you can thread it back to the mother and thread it back to the father and then the child's created this thing around their relationship behaviour? Well, if you think about it, the best example we have of to how to have a relationship is our own parents or our own caregivers that we grew up with. And sometimes I also add in there, and at best, we usually have two examples of relationships or how relationships are meant to be done. We have our own parents or caregivers that we were raised with, and we have our best friend's parents or caregivers. And the reason I say our best friends, parents, are caregivers, because that's whose house you would have spent the second most amount of time at. Yeah, that's really good. I never would have thought of that. But I know in my life growing up, I used to admire different things from different friends' parents. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I know that my dad was definitely a role model for 
for hugging and kissing, whereas their dads might not have been a hugger and a kisser and a bit of fun. So they used to sit on my dad's lap, you know, and felt safe with my dad because they weren't safe in their own father's lap because their father didn't give them love and nurturing like that. And so what that does is it allows you the opportunity to create a, okay, here's what I really enjoyed from my family, but oh, you know, my girlfriend, her parents did this a little, I like that too. And so you create this mold of what you think a relationship should and shouldn't include. But guess what? You have a relationship with somebody else. And so the other person's done the same thing as well. So essentially you have four relationships um, merging together to try to inform your relationship without any true education about what makes a relationship successful. Right. And that's, that's the complexity where you're just coming in with these sort of eight things inside of you and how that's yeah, going to so, play out so, with another half. Yeah. I love this person and it's just going to work out. And I'm like, yeah, that's not how this works. <laughs> no. I actually look back on the last 30 years of my relationship and think um, with perspective like that, the first five years were the hardest and yet we were in the honeymoon period for five years, absolutely. And I know that's a little unusual, a little bit longer than normal, but we definitely had five years of honeymoon period, but that also was the most tumultuous time. Yeah. And so it's when your communication's at its peak, it's when you're willing to ask questions and get to know somebody, and then we almost kind of slip almost into a complacency, and that's where it can be really, really problematic. Mm. Yeah, every decade got a little easier, um, but we're still fighting it out, and I'm proud of that, and I think people think that good relationships don't have conflict, and I say, Oh, God, no. We, oh. we love fighting it out. We fight, fight it out to the bitter end until it's all bloody resolved, and that can take till 3 in the morning sometimes. But um, yeah. we... And all the rest of relationships have conflict. Yeah. The difference is how you manage the conflict makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think with us, um, it was definitely failure is not an option. That was one of our sort of things. Um, leaving like actually just leaving the through the door and walking off is not an option. Um, they were some of the boundaries we put in place. And um, that sort of held us in good stead. Um, not to say that if it's violent, if somebody was violent that you shouldn't leave. I understand that some people need that strategy to get out. But in our case, that wasn't the issue. It was just that will you stay and you sort it out. That was kind of our attitude that we, we ado adopted really early on. And I think that's, you've kind of really clarified there in that you set boundaries. And there's a lot of couples that don't know how to set boundaries or don't know how to have a sit down conversation and say, here's what I expect in the relationship, here's what you expect in the relationship, and then here's what we expect of the relationship. And so there's so many different facets that people can actually do. And they're, they're tiny little things. It could be an hour-long conversation that ends up saving you like five years of grief. Yeah. Yeah, I think this um, big thing that's coming up these days that I'm hearing a lot more of is emotional safety. And they're talking about that at work. 
as well as in the home. And one of the things about him not being able to leave and walk off and storm off and get in the car and go away during a fight gave me a lot of security, gave me a lot of safety to know that no one's going to abandon me midway. No one's going to disappear just because it got tough. And yeah. nor was I going to do that either. So how do you feel about this emotional safety and do women have it and can you create it? And, oh, my gosh, how important is it? I think you've just opened up a can of worms. I think it's extremely important. Um, but, again, if you haven't learned about it and you haven't learned how to implement it, it's a great word. It's a great concept. But if you don't know how to implement it and you don't know how to have a discussion around it, then that's exactly what it is. It's a concept. Yeah. Because a lot so, of women must feel very unsafe in their relationships. And if they did kick up or speak up and speak out, that, you know, it could end in disaster. And they're not willing to take that risk. Absolutely. And so then it's, again, it's looking at the relationship. Is this the most ideal relationship for that person to be in? Mm. Yeah. And do you help people do conscious uncoupling? Is that a thing now? Yes. That is one of my I favorite love that word, by the way. Love it. Love it. <laughs> about it so, in the last two years, and I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think um, amicable separation is how I like to look at it, and it's it's very useful. It's very viable if it is actually done properly. But again, if it's this really nice concept because you heard someone in Hollywood did it, and you think you'd <laughs> like to do it without really realizing what it is and how to do it. Um, it becomes a big thing. So yeah, getting some education around what it is and what it looks like is really important, um, especially around finance and children. And so if finance and children, if it's just the two of you and you don't really have any assets and no children to worry about, yeah, separate, find a way to be, you know, amicable and nice to each other. But what adds a few layers of complexity is finance, is children, and is also the, um, the couples that you interact with. So it's like, is this my couple of friends or is this your couple of friends? And, you know, and, and how you negotiate, that's pretty important. And um, this sexologist stuff, what's going on with that? Are you going into that side of things? Um, yeah, so as a, I'm one of a handful of people who has a master's of forensic sexology. And what that is, is it's understanding all the physiological response that your body does, the psychological response, how touch is so vitally important, how a sex life can actually get better. You know how you were saying that like every decade of your relationship, you kind of feels like been a little bit better. Well, that's what your sex life should be like too. So it shouldn't just be like, oh, we had great, really awesome Randy sex when we first met and then we haven't had any sex in five years. It's like, no, every year your sex life should be getting better. Every year your intimacy should get better because you're going to learn the skills to be able to implement that. But again, not everyone's a sexologist. Not everyone has that knowledge of how to apply it. And for most of us, you think talking about your relationship puts you in a weird spot? Let's talk about your sex life. <laughs> yeah. you must be a master communicator because that would be tough I love it though and I think you know having nearly 20 years in the field I think is pretty important so uh, I always say that there's 
very few things that are left to actually surprise me anymore. So from having a TV show to having a radio station to seeing clients for 20 years now, there is not much I haven't heard or seen um, from a, the group of clients that I have. And I think that's really important. So there is no like, he, 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 or, oh, you said that? You, it's just sex is such a huge part. Sex and intimacy is such a huge part of relationships. Why would you not talk about that? If you're seeing a relationship educator or a marriage educator or a marriage therapist and they're not talking about your sex life, they're not really a marriage educator or a therapist. Like they might just be a individual therapist who just can deal with couples or, but it's like, that is such a huge component of marriage. Um, or even of relationships. So forget just marriage, just of all relationships, that it needs to be discussed. Because again, your sexual intimacy and relationship needs are going to be different to your partners. So how do you communicate together to say, this is what we would like within the relationship? Yeah. And um, women are starting to switch that sex stuff back on a bit more nowadays. And so um, they're starting to think about it a bit more. Don't you think, Amanda? Yeah, I think it's never been turned off. I think we're just, we're in a space where we feel probably a little more comfortable speaking about it. Um, but definitely, I don't think, and it, it might be because I am a sexologist um, and all of my friends know that I am a sexologist. So when we have our barbecues or our get-togethers or our dinners, it's kind of a natural component of our conversation so it's like if you're the life coach there's natural components of that conversation you talk about if you're a business coach there's natural components of that that you talk about so i think for me it's it's not unnatural or unnormal to actually have those conversations and i think that's pretty important yeah, if I go to a party and we don't talk about sex, it's a pretty dull, dull party. I have sex in my everyday conversations with all of my friends all of the time, and I love it. I think it's so much fun. And I think it's important to understand that there's going to be, there's strengths and limitations with regard to every aspect of intimacy and sexuality within a relationship and being able to look at those pros and cons and giving weight to the ones that need weight given to them. Yeah, and have you found that um, the whole kink area, is that an area of um, interest for you or not, not really coming up in everyday relationships? I wouldn't say it comes up in everyday relationships, but it comes up in a good majority of relationships. Oh, cool, so it's um, quite common. Yeah, so, but again, very taboo. So a lot of people will tread the water and just have a conversation about their relationship. Um, but what I do find is that anyone who is into um, kink, BDSM, any of that kind of like a, a, the other realm of stuff is that they're much more willing to come in and have a conversation about their relationship and their sex life than average Joe Blow. Yeah, because they're much more opened already to have had the guts to go and explore that side of themselves. And so they're likely to be more, yeah, immune to those sort of conversations and no big deal to them. Because I've found everyone I've met out of those, out of those places, out of those um, uh, who have had those sort of experiences are really open people. You open got it. Books. 
Whereas, yeah, people that haven't really explored their kink, and my view is everyone's got one. It's just how extreme is it really is the question. And what we find is because they are more open to exploring who they are and what they enjoy sexually, they're usually more open to having great conversations in their relationship and sharing these questions and these feelings and these emotions with their partner. Yeah, I think um, probably because <laughs> I haven't been able to explore all that before, I love interviewing them. So I love, um, they tell me everything and they let me ask any question I want. And I can go into the, the minutiest side, the, the tiniest details, and they'll tell me whatever. And I read any book on kink. I just find it such a fascinating area about psychologically how did it come about and when did it come about, you know, what's happened. And quite a lot of the time, from what I've read, they don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's just a yeah. preference. Yeah, it's, it's just, just a preference. That's why I enjoy it. You know, like, it's kind of... Well, I enjoy it because I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, what got you enjoying it? I don't yeah. know. I just enjoy it. You know, like it, it's not a, here was this life defining event that led me to this. It's not usually like that. It's just, this is my preference and that's why I enjoy it. And if you like it, bonus. And if you don't, that's cool too. Yeah. It just it was bizarre to me that there wasn't this moment that changed them. But no, you're right. As I researched and I realized that most of them had no core beginning at all it just is and they don't know why and they don't care why they just like it yeah exactly Huge. it's so much fun look um amanda if it's okay with you we'd love to have you back in series two and i'm even thinking after today um we're going to do an x-rated version of the podcast for some awesome. who might be interested so if it's okay with you we might have you on the x-rated one as well Absolutely. We'd love to do that. Okay, fantastic. So we'll be in touch, but we're just filming season one for now. So you've been great. You've added to the conversation um, beautifully. And I can't thank you enough um, for adding this, this dimension to it. It's been really, really good. Anytime at all. Definitely be in touch and, and go from there. Where are you based out of? I'm based out of um, Sydney and... Um, the we're going to in the show notes i'm going to put all your details and yep. guys um amanda's in perth time so just bear that in mind when you look her up that uh, she's on that weird like she gets extra time <laughs> you know I get extra time my day starts super early but it ends very late no <laughs> Yeah, like uh, we're doing this at 4 30 it's now about 5 30 and it's still mid-afternoon for amanda Exactly. My kids aren't even home from school yet, so we're good. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Well, you've been so delightful, and I just intuitively knew you would be, and I just think there's another hour or two that we can do. But I think it's two more episodes for you, Amanda, if you would, you know, play along. Sounds good. Yeah, and definitely be in touch. Let me know when this goes to air, and I'll make sure that all of my audience knows as well. Lovely. Thank you, Amanda. See you soon.